You can go ahead and be seated and invite you to begin making your way to the Gospel of John chapter 15 this morning as we pick up in our series through uh, the Gospel of John. We, we find ourselves in John chapter 15, going to finish the chapter this morning beginning in verse 18. Let me just say, if there's something that Jesus most certainly never promised, it's that the life of the believer is an easy life. It's not smooth sailing. Jesus never promised to withhold suffering. He he never promised that that the life of a believer is without struggle, and he most certainly never promised that we would be free from opposition. But you know, Jesus didn't really put this in the fine print either. I mean, Jesus was, was clear, he was up front, he, he talks about the fact that, that believers will face an opposition. In fact, in our passage this morning, Jesus describes the persecution that is faced by those who, as he would describe, have been chosen out of the world. And on one level, we need this passage because well, it helps us understand what's going on in the world. It helps us make sense of, of, of our world and, and, and what it's like to be a Christian struggling in this world. But there's another sense, another level in which we need this passage because it makes us come face to face with the fact that, that if this experience is completely foreign to us, then there's something wrong with our discipleship. And so look with me, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 15. This is what Jesus says. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. As we continue in this portion of John's Gospel, you've got to remember that 
still the upper room discourse. I mean, perhaps they've, they've left the upper room. They're, they're kind of making their way to where uh, Jesus would eventually be betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. But the discourse is still the same. Starting in chapter 13 and working its way through chapter 17, what, what John records for us is the instruction that is given to his disciples, uh, the farewell instructions uh, on the night before his crucifixion. And so what he's been doing, he's been preparing them to live in his physical absence. It's mere hours before Jesus will be crucified, he'll be hung on the cross, he'll he'll die, he'll be buried, he'll raise three days later, but then after he's appeared to the disciples and many more, he will then go and take his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. He will be absent physically from them until until his return. So he's telling them now the the things that are most important, the things that they need to know. So he's talked about what it means to to serve one another and and to love one another. He's he's talked about how he's preparing a place for them and they can take comfort in that fact. He's he's talked about what it means for them to abide in him and, and, and walk in intimacy with him. And then he comes to this point and lets them know that there's going to be something else. He Maybe this isn't what they wanted to hear, but this is probably what they needed to hear. He turns his attention to how the world will view them. He says there's going to be an animosity coming their way. And, and you might think, hey, hate is a strong word, but it's used here at least, at least eight times, either hate or hatred. And, and so in essence, Jesus is saying in all his preparatory remarks, to get them ready for this time, he's saying, here's, here's the deal. Uh, they hate me. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. They're going to do that to me. And they're going to hate you as well. Again, probably not what they wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. And and what Jesus does is he doesn't just tell them, hey, this is what's going to happen. He tells them why it's going to happen. And then he tells them what they should do in light of it. And so, so if we look at the why first, why does the world hate Christians? Why does Jesus say, they hate me, now they're going to hate you? Well, he gives us some answers. First, in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus begins with this phrase, if the world hates you. Now, that word if, Jesus doesn't say it as a sense of, of uncertainty. Jesus was never uncertain in anything that he, he said. He doesn't say it in a sense of uncertainty. The sense is more if, and, and trust me, they will hate you. You need to know that it's because they hate me. Now in here there's an assumption. There's this assumption that, that, that his disciples and those who would come after are truly following Christ, that their, their lives are, are, are marked by true discipleship. You know, it reminds me of what Paul would say in 2 Timothy 3.12. He, he says this, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. There's really, he doesn't give any exceptions, he doesn't give any disclaimers, he just says that if somebody desires to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, they will face opposition. Now imagine for a second if this is what 
When we make gospel presentations to people, this is what we told them up front. Oh, by the way, we just want to let you know that if you decide to follow Jesus, there's going to be fierce opposition from people if you really truly decide to follow him. And, and while we might not put that up front, I mean, the opposite of it, it can be deceiving sometimes because we might just feel compelled to tell people that if they come to Christ, their life will be free from problems and, and worry and suffer and everything will be great, there will be health, there will be wealth, and they'll have essentially their best life now. But, but Jesus gives full disclosure. The world hates you. He says, know that it hated me first. There will be opposition, but it will be on account of Christ. Jesus was hated and so will his followers. Less than 24 hours after he made the statement, he was arrested for crimes he didn't commit. He was mocked. He was beaten. Uh, he was hung on a cross. They, 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 they dressed him up as a mock king. He was impaled by a spear and they hated him. You can't argue that they didn't hate him. And and so then we ask the question, well, what does Jesus mean by the world? If he says the world hate, hated me, it's going to hate you. What, is, what does he mean by that? Is he talking about every single person on the face of the planet? Well, likely not. When Jesus uses the word world here, he's, he's really talking about those who, who are in open rebellion against God. Those who, who despise God. Those who don't live by God. Those who don't acknowledge God. Now, now, to be honest, that, that really encompasses the majority of people on earth. Uh, by virtue of our sin, all people have embraced sort of this anti-God world system, and, and our sin has ushered us into to this rebellious world, which, which in essence, we live our lives apart from God. We decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. We make ourselves the authority, and, and so by definition, the world hates Jesus because it stands opposed to all that he is and all that he is is doing. But Jesus says he called them out of the world. He's speaking to his disciples here, his, his apostles, and, and really that's true of us too. In verse 19 he says, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus is saying, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, then, then in essence, you really belong to this world. You're not really a citizen of this place. You've been, you've been pulled out. You've been rescued from the rebellion. You've been taken from, from this world that is opposed to God. When he calls us out of the world, he also calls us to something. He calls him to us to himself. He's called us from the rebellion into the family of God, and, and it isn't because we're special or because we're unique or because you know, God looked at us and saw just these wonderful talents that we might have, but it's just a demonstration of his unmerited favor. It's a demonstration of his, of his grace, that we, we did nothing to, to earn it, but, but it is, belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, when Jesus called us to him, he, well, he made us a unique people. Unique people. We see that in, in places like 1 Peter 2.9 where, where the church, the, the redeemed people of God, those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, he, he, he describes them as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a nation of people for his possession. And actually, I like how the King James translates it. It says a peculiar people. But even though we're a peculiar people, by nature we want to we fit into this 
into this world. We want to be loved and respected by the world. It often seems easier to go that route. It seems more convenient. It seems less troublesome. And my guess is that some of us at times will even change our theology a bit because of, because of the pressures to live like the world. We might lower our view of Scripture. We might soften moral issues and, and diminish the, the really the radical nature of God's calling on our life, so that we're, we're not at odds with the world. So there isn't that, that tension between us and everyone else. But fitting into the world is the exact opposite of why Jesus chose us and called us and saved us. It, I mean, if, if fitting in the world were the goal, if that, if that were the, the main goal, to just, just kind of fit in and live at peace with everyone, well, then we don't need Jesus. Jesus wouldn't have to do anything. I mean, before he called us, before he saved us, we fit into the world perfectly fine. And, and yet he called us and he rescued us. And, and the purpose of our salvation, in one sense, is, is wrapped up in us living distinctively. A, a peculiar people. Now, now, when he says a peculiar people, um, he's talking about the sense of uniqueness. And he goes on in 1 Peter 2.9 to say, so that you may proclaim the praise of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so if you're, if you're sort of wondering what your purpose is in life as a Christian, then you found it right there. To proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. And in fact, Jesus is saying the, the world will hate you because you're, you're different. You're different because I called you to be different. And it's that difference that makes the gospel light shine all the brighter. Now understand, it calls us to be a unique people and not just different, not just like weird. I mean, we, we might be weird on our, on our own. Uh, you know, the saying goes, everyone's normal until you get to know them. And, and so Jesus isn't like calling us to just have strange idiosyncrasies. I mean, I, got, I have my fair share of those on my own. But, but the difference that he's calling us to, and, and we know this from what he said previously in this discourse, the difference that he's calling us to is to bear fruit. Fruit in the lives of believers. And so the way we're peculiar, so to speak, is, is not just that we're oddballs, but that we, we pray, we, we obey, we rejoice, we, we love in ways that are unnatural to the person who doesn't know Jesus. There's a radical allegiance to the person of Jesus Christ that, that isn't seen in the people who aren't believers. He gives us another reason in verse 20. He says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. If we, if we follow Jesus, we have to ask the question, well, where did Jesus go? Jesus went to the cross. And so you can't follow a crucified Savior and not expect a, a cross. I mean, after all, Jesus says, anybody who wants to follow me has to take up their cross and follow me daily. And I wonder if this is perhaps one of the problems with, with Christianity today, that, that, that we see a version of Christianity that doesn't require a secular cross. 
that requires no burden for us. That requires us not denying ourselves. It doesn't require us to, to, to make this radical commitment of obedience and, and really live in such a way that, that we are unique and shining the gospel light in our lives. But, but here's his logic. He says, the servant is not greater than his master. So if our master who never sinned died because of the world's hatred, then logic alone tells us that we should expect something very similar, especially since since we have sinned, since we, we aren't perfect. And in the face of the world's hatred, it's helpful to remember that he, in fact, is the reason why we're hated. See, in a sense, we're not the ultimate target. I mean, people's hatred might be directed towards us, but we're not the ultimate target. Ultimately, Jesus is. And just to give you an example, so before the nation of Israel had a king, they were led by the prophet Samuel. You probably remember, remember that very well from your reading of the Old Testament. And one day, uh, the people came to Samuel and they, they begged him and they said, go, go to God and ask him for a king. We, we want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king. And, and, and so please, you know, go talk to God and give us, give us a, an earthly king. And, and so Samuel was grieved by this. He was disappointed. And, and he, went to, he went to God on their behalf and and then God encouraged him, and this is essentially what he said. This is my paraphrase, 1 Samuel 8, 7. He says, Samuel, don't take it personally. The problem isn't with you, it's with me. They haven't rejected you, but they have rejected me. And, and ironically, they had a king all along. Their, their king was, was God. But you see, when the world hurts and, and imprisons and kills Christians and, and does things in opposition to Christians, it's not really about them. It's about the person of Jesus, their intended target is Jesus, but they can't reach him, and so they settle for taking aim at those who follow him. Now, that may be of some comfort to you, but perhaps what should be of more comfort to you is the, is the fact that this has to do with suffering. You see, originally Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. He said that in chapter 13. Now, when he said that in chapter 13, he was using that to talk about service. You remember, he, he got down on his knees, he, he did one of the most humbling things that he could do, and he, he washed the feet of his subordinates. He got down on their, their stinky, dirty feet. Jesus, Jesus washed them, and he dried them, and he said, a servant is not above his master. And, and so in other words, he says, if, I, if I'm going to stoop down and wash people's feet and serve the least, shouldn't, shouldn't you be doing the same? But here, he's not talking about service, he's talking about suffering. He's talking about suffering, and this is a theme that, that sort of runs throughout the New Testament, is that believers identify with Christ in the fellowship of his suffering. They persecute me, they will persecute you also. Historically speaking, this has been proven, this has been proven true. In 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed at the end of, uh, of war in 1945, in, he was in a German concentration camp, he wrote this in his, his well-known book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. And discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. And so, so we know in our sufferings, sufferings on, on account of of our life in Christ, that, that that is part of our union with Christ. 
I mean, that's just part of what it means to be one with Him. And, and the wonderful thing about the suffering that we share with Him is in the very midst of our suffering. Jesus is able to say, I understand. Completely, and I totally understand. You suffered more than you and I ever will. But I would venture to say that, that many professing Christians haven't experienced hatred from the world on account of serving Jesus. I mean, if your allegiance to Christ is not overt, if it isn't on display, if it doesn't permeate your life, then, well, of course, where will opposition come from at that point? In John 15, 20, Jesus says all humanity is really divided into two camps. There are those who persecute his disciples and those who listen and obey to his words spoken by the disciples. And, and so if our lives are distinctly Christ-like, then people respond in one of two ways. They'll, they'll either receive the words or they'll reject the words. And with the rejection of the words often comes the rejection of the persecution or the person, the messenger. But really, at this point, we have to stop and ask ourselves, is this true of my life? And in varying degrees. Because we know it's true that here we don't really suffer and face persecution like, like many of our brothers and sisters do in other places of the world. But, but if I just sort of fit in so nicely and perfectly with everybody else in the world, we have to stop and look at our discipleship and ask, where are we really? It gives us another reason, verse 21. This is verse 21, but, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Here's, here's another reason why it can be expected, and it's a really simple one. The, the world is estranged from, from God. You see, sometimes Christians might act surprised at the world's behavior, and, and too often we expect you know, that, that the rest of the world should, should somehow abide by Christian principles and behave in a way that's obedient to God, but, but that just isn't isn't true. Jesus reminds us that they don't know God, and so the world is living in an open rebellion against the Creator. And, and, and when we're shocked by this, we, well, we shouldn't be shocked by this. It should just remind us about the world's condition. And so maybe, maybe, maybe this is profound to some of you, but let me just state it this way. Unbelievers will act like unbelievers. People who don't know God will act like people who don't know God. And, and so in one sense, we shouldn't be surprised by that. In another sense, we should also be patient with people who don't know the Lord. Christians should live different. Jesus says the world will hate us on account of his name. The, the hatred of the world comes to those who actually live for Jesus. The world doesn't hate, the world doesn't hate undercover Christians. Think about that. The world doesn't hate those who are kind of secretively Christian. Those who aren't overtly Christian, who aren't distinctively Christian, who aren't following Christ. The world doesn't hate that. If we do face opposition, we shouldn't spend our time boasting about being persecuted either. That's not how the, the gospel goes forth. And, and just, just sitting around complaining and, and, and watching Fox News and talking about how we're, you know, we're being persecuted and our rights are being taken away. Sure, those things are happening, but, but he doesn't want us to just sit around and complain about those things. Because again, the purpose is to display the person of Jesus. And, 
And, and the more that we do display the G, person of Jesus, the, the more people around us will see and, and the more they'll respond, and, and oftentimes negatively. Jesus does something else. I mean, not just, not just because the world doesn't know God, that doesn't mean they have an excuse. I mean, all people are responsible for their sin. Uh, reminds me of Romans chapter 1, and it says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, God says that, that there is enough evidence in this world to convict the world of its sin. And those who have heard Jesus bear an even greater responsibility. In fact, Jesus, one of the things he does is he exposes the world's guilt. Look with me at verses 22 through 25. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without excuse. When Jesus came to the world, he did, he did amazing, he did incredible signs and wonders. He, he spoke like no other man had spoke. He taught like no other man had taught. He, he did things that no person had ever done before. And yet, one of the things that we've seen clearly from the beginning of John's gospel is that there are some who, yes, they respond in faith, but there are some who respond in fierce opposition. They they hate him. They, they try to kill him. We might hate people if they speak and act in a way that's mean, a way that's untruthful, a way that's arrogant, but Jesus was none of these things. So why was he so hated? Jesus entered a world made pitch black by sin, and he shone like the sun at high noon. And as a result, one of the things that happened with Jesus coming into the world is people's sin was revealed. The sin, the shame, the wickedness around them was, was sort of seen in a true and undeniable light. Seen clearly. And so all the people who thought that they were pretty good, they, well, they saw Jesus and, and all of a sudden they realized they're not so good so good anymore. And they hated him for it. Harry Ironside told a story a long time ago to illustrate this point. And he was talking about how years ago sort of the inland African missionaries were were were, were gaining headway and 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 in this this little missionary area, uh, there was a missionary station and a wife of an African chief happened to to visit the station that day. And, and the missionary had this little mirror hung up on a tree outside his home. And, and the woman came by and she began to, to glance into it. And, and remember, she wasn't a God worshiper. She wasn't, she wasn't a believer. She came from pagan practices. And, and she looked in the mirror. She didn't like what she saw. In fact, not even realizing that it was, it was a mirror, she, she gazed at it. And she said to the missionary, who is that horrible looking person inside the tree? And he said, well, it's, it's not the tree. He said, the glass is reflecting your own face. 
And she couldn't believe it until she took the mirror off the tree. She was holding it in, in her hand that she could, she could see, and she finally understood. And when she understood, she was looking at her own reflection. She, she wanted to buy the mirror. The missionary didn't want to depart with, with the mirror. He wanted to keep it, but you know, she, she kind of hassled him, and so he figured, well, I better avoid trouble. So he just sold her the mirror. And when, when the price was agreed, she bought the mirror. She took the mirror, and she fiercely threw it on the ground, and she broke it. And she said, I'll never have it making faces at me again. In a sense, that's what happens. The hatred of the world for Christians is the woman breaking the mirror that shows her true reflection. The world lashes out at Christians due to a guilty conscience. The, the righteousness of Christ and the presence of his followers reminds people of their guilt and shame. So if, if you are living a distinctively Christian life, if, if you're following Christ, if you're, if you're living for him, if you're pursuing righteousness, then others will look at you and and one of the things it's going to do is reveal their own guilt, their own conviction. And, and instead of, of anger, Christians have regularly, and they should, express sympathy for people who are in this place. I mean, I mean we, we say with Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And, and they don't understand the hatred that, that hides the guilty screams of their tormented consciences. And so, so we understand and, and, and we should respond with, with mercy and not anger. So if there is opposition, far from going around just talking about how there's opposition, we should, we should be filled with even greater compassion for people. Now, some of you are probably wondering at this point, what, is, what does the hatred of the world even look like in my life? Now, on one level, there's a type of persecution we simply don't face in the United States. I mean, it's, globally, it's a different story. Estimates by research groups say that the, the annual number of Christians killed as a direct result of their faith is as high as 8,000 a year. Another study found 111 countries who either restrict or are hostile to Christianity. And it's reported that more than 100 million Christians are suffering persecution around the globe. North Korea alone, there's 50, as estimates put it, 50 to 70,000 Christians who are being held in detention camps. Now, that's, that's really foreign to us. I mean, I, I'm confident in saying the reality is most of us, none of us, will probably ever be martyred for our faith. But, I mean, we have to be honest, we're, it's, we have a pretty good in, in most of the time here in the United States, and we're not getting beheaded, we're, we're not being thrown to the lions, we're not being thrown into to prison. I mean, there are more than 300,000 churches in the United States, and the majority of Americans at least call themselves Christians. It's, it's legal to be a Christian, it's legal to proclaim Christ, it's legal to convert to Christianity, and, and so we don't want to miss these things because we're thankful for these things. We're grateful for them. But, but in our context, traditional Christianity and traditional Christian beliefs are facing increasing intolerance. And there's things like fines and lawsuits and job loss. There's public disdain. I mean, if you hold a tradi traditional biblical view on marriage and gender, then, then somebody is, is going to see you as a narrow-minded bigot. It's just the reality. And there's, there's extreme pressure on Christians and to, to, to acquiesce to this. And, and many have rethought their stance on, on these issues, unfortunately. 
When we think of the word persecution, the biblical word in Greek really carries the sense of violent opposition, but it actually carries more than that. It carries a, a sense of opposition, generally speaking, where, where a person's harassed. So it may look something like, like this. Um, here's a story in, of Baker in Denver, Colorado, Jack Phillips. He was, he was asked to create a wedding cake by a gay couple. Um, and in 2012, he refused. He, he said, hey, you know, these are my Christian beliefs, and he offered to give them any other baked goods they want, but he wouldn't do a, a, a wedding cake for a homosexual wedding. And so they responded by opting to, to sue him. They claimed that they, he treated them in a dehumanizing way, and, and the, the courts actually ruled in their, their favor. They, they ordered him to make the wedding cake, and again, he insisted not to because of his faith, and, and so he actually had to stop baking wedding cakes entirely in his building. Business is done. That's opposition. That's, that's, a, that's persecution on a level. Now, now, many of us, I don't think anyone here is a cake baker, but, but here's the thing. The bottom line is if you faithfully follow Jesus, you're going to get pushback. I mean, how many people have become Christians later on in life as adults and they go to their family and all of a sudden there's this opposition, there's this rejection by, by family members? Or, or, or you bring the disdain of your coworkers upon yourself because, because at some point you're faced to make a choice, moral issues, moral choices, uh, whether you're going to take part in something or not take part in something. This could cost you the respect of your peers, could cost you a promotion. If you faithfully follow Jesus, it could cost you friendships. But again, here's the bottom line. We don't need to sit around and think of scenarios and talk about the theoretical persecution that's going on in the world if we faithfully follow Jesus, there will be a point. It's promised to us. There's an opposition from the world. And if it never, ever happens to us, if things never come into conflict, then we have to ask the question, to whom do we belong to? We've answered the why. That's why the world hates Christians. I think it's clear. But we need to take a moment and, and, and talk about how should we respond? This is really true. How should we respond? Well, first of all, we shouldn't, we shouldn't ever stop witnessing about Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 26 and 27. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus promises to send his spirit to tell people about him. Then he says to his disciples that he'll tell people about him. We understand these two promises as one, the promise that his spirit will empower his disciples to witness about him. And the Holy Spirit is called the counselor, the spirit of truth, and, and he will also help his disciples speak the truth about you. So in other words, he says, listen, here's the disclaimer. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to face this. There's, there's going to be opposition if you, if you seek after me, if you live a godly life in Jesus Christ, but, but I'm not going to leave you to do it by yourself. To accomplish it on your own, there's, there's divine reinforcements. There is the Spirit of God sent from the throne of God to empower the people of God to witness about the Son of God. So this is equally a, a promise just as persecution. And the Spirit of God empowers us to tell the truth. But see right on that for a second. To, to tell the truth. To tell the truth means that we need to be honest about sin. 
Because the temptation is that we, we face is to minimize sin in order to downplay the differences between Christians and the world. And sometimes we almost present Christianity to people as, like, as if this is just a good add-on to the life you already live right now, but we need to be honest with people. Um, again, this stems from our desire to be loved instead of hated. However, if we're not honest about sin, then, then we can't impress upon people the need for a Savior. And honesty about sin begins by being honest about our own sins. And it's not always difficult to tell the truth about someone else's sin, but it's far more difficult to be truthful about our own sin. And so the Holy Spirit can help witness about our own need for salvation. And we must not also act as if we have it all together, we have it all figured out, but instead we just need to be honest about our brokenness, our weakness, our failure. And then and only then can we talk honestly about our desperate need for Christ and and present that to others as a means of grace. We approach people unwilling to open up about our own need for salvation, then our words might seem arrogant and hypocritical and, and, and condemning. And there's, there's a danger of redefining sin in order to make the good news easier to hear. But, but again, love compels us to be honest. Whatever God calls sin, we call sin. We have no authority to call clean what God calls unclean. And the Holy Spirit helps us share this difficult truth about sin. So we need, we need to ask God for help. We need to ask God for, for help. And, but we also need to realize this is wrapped up in hospitality. I mean, one of the reasons why we should try so hard to show hospitality is because we know that the message of the gospel is by nature offensive. And there's Martin Luther who said, if you, if you come and you listen to the word and you're not offended, he said, you probably haven't heard the word at all. The very nature of the word is, is offensive. And so to present the gospel honestly, we have to tell a person that he or she is a sinner who stands guilty before God. But, but the offense of the gospel is part of a greater message of God's plan to welcome sinners into the family of God because of the sacrifice of his son. And so, so when our witness about the gospel is coupled with hospitality and love, then people have a better chance of seeing the gospel demonstrated in our lives. And they have a better chance of seeing that invitation to be reconciled to God through Jesus. And so to testify about Jesus requires just simple honesty about sin, a willingness to be rejected. No one enjoys rejection. I mean, I think about the times when I've failed to share the gospel. And I think if I'm honest with myself, that really it's, it's because I fear rejection. When it comes to witnessing about Jesus, we need to embrace rejection. We, in rejection, we find fellowship with Jesus. Jesus was rejected. And, and, and so when his people are rejected on his account, we find this unique fellowship and identification with him. We, we, we see that in, in the book of Hebrews so clearly. When we fear rejection by the world, we refuse to be identified with Jesus. Rejection by the world means we've joined Jesus outside the camp. That's where the criminals go. That's where Jesus went to be despised and so we have to ask the question, who do we want to be accepted by? And those inside the, the camp will accept us as long as we're willing to say, stay silent about Jesus, or we can speak up, we can face rejection. We can chose to choose to go where Jesus went out, outside the wall, outside the circle, outside the city limits, outside of safety. The fear of being hated and rejected by the world, that's what often keeps us from speaking about Jesus. So, tells us not to stop witnessing. 
It tells us that if you've been silent, to start speaking now, and, and that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to help you share the truth about Him. But, but a second thing that we should do is not fall away. Again, over and over again, He's not talking about losing salvation, but, but He is talking about a, a sense of persecution that causes a person to become disillusioned, disciples to be disillusioned. Jesus doesn't minimize the severity of persecution. He tells the truth, and the truth protects his disciples from becoming disillusioned. They won't look back and say, Jesus never told us that it would be difficult. He never said it wouldn't be easy. No, he was honest about the cost of following him. He said that they would be cast out of the synagogue and that some would be killed. Now, to be cast out of the synagogue, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like just being, being thrown out of any old place. To be cast out of the synagogue, well, a person could often be killed because they were cast out of the synagogue. To be cast out of the synagogue was a big deal because you weren't just losing sort of your church that you identified with. It means you were being kicked out of your community. Your identity would be erased. Your future plans would be shattered. Uh, you couldn't marry a girl from that community. Any children you had would be outcasts. Your family would consider you dead. In fact, they would oftentimes, if you were cast out of the synagogue, throw a funeral for you and mourn over you, and you would be a man without a family or a country. For a Jew, being kicked out of the synagogue would be worse than death. And many would actually choose death over this dishonor. But it's a far cry from the false promises of the false gospels that we find preached in so many places today. I mean, Jesus is worth it, and the benefits far outweigh the cost. But, but there is a cost, to be sure. There is a cost to following Jesus. Anybody who tells you that Jesus is the way to good health and riches or luxury is not following Jesus, he's, he's selling you something else. So following Jesus leads to suffering, leads to persecution, and persecutors will often be driven by religious fervor. They will persecute you as an act of worship to their false gods. They, they would think that this is the right thing to do, the most loving thing to do. I mean, think of the Apostle Paul before his conversion and, and what he did, what, what he thought he was doing, he thought was honoring God. Till the Lord removed the blinders from his life. The history of Christianity is filled with with martyrs, the church father Tertullian famously once said, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There's this, there's this high price that comes with following Jesus. And, and Christians through the centuries have been willing to pay the price. In fact, many of Jesus' disciples who he's talking to in this farewell discourse would later face a death by persecution. If we know that Jesus is, is worth the call, in the face of it all, we, we, can, we can hold on to the truth and cling to him tightly. When leave, living for Jesus and, and speaking about Jesus brings persecution, we, we don't have to fall away. We don't have to be disillusioned. We can rejoice because God's spirit will be in you in a unique way when you share in the sufferings of Christ. So perhaps the greatest danger we face in times of persecution is not injury, it's not death, but perhaps it's falling away. Perhaps the greatest danger in persecution is being convinced this temporary life is, is more valuable than Jesus. And persecution has this way of sifting the true discipleship from the false. It exposes, exposes those who are not Christians at all, those, those who, who circle Christianity hoping to get something for themselves, but, but living for Jesus 
and, and telling others about Jesus might cause someone to, to hate you. That's just the simple reality that Jesus promises. It may mean you're excluded from someone else's circle of friends. You might experience mockery and insults. It may mean you're excluded, and it may mean, it may mean that your life is just that much more difficult. Jesus says in the face of that, don't don't be disillusioned, don't fall away. In the face of it, keep walking, keep trusting, keep clinging to me. John Patton was a missionary to the cannibals on an island in the mid-1800s, and he suffered suffered greatly. He faced faced death over and over and over again. And and he described one time when a native tried to kill him with an axe, and another man stepped in and saved his life. He wrote this, he wrote, Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made, and yet with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed on Calvary, and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. So when you face Not if, but when you face opposition and persecution for following Jesus. Whether it comes from somebody swinging an axe at you, or whether it comes from a neighbor who's just spreading a lie about you, you and I can cling to the hand that was once nailed to Calvary, the hand that's now wielding the scepter of the universe. Father, we pray that We pray that, that we would do an honest examination of our lives. Not, not meant to, to make us doubt our Christianity, but just to ask the question, where am I in my discipleship with, with you? Am I, am I really pursuing righteousness and godliness in such a way that, that I see there's, there's opposition? And, and Lord, far from being discouraging, I, I pray that, that, we would, that we would walk away from the text and realize that just as great as the promises for, for opposition, just as great as the promises for the help of your spirit, for us to live a life for you, to live a light that shines the light of the gospel. And so we pray that you would help us to do just that. We ask this in Jesus' name.